Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this episode, my guest is the New York Times bestselling author, Bonnie Garmus. Now, for regular listeners, you may not know who Bonnie Garmus is yet, but I bet you've seen her book. Lessons in Chemistry is everywhere at the moment. Well, everywhere that sells books, and it's usually in the window display, and if it's not there, it definitely is in the charts. And with good reason. It's great. (laughs) It was subject to a bidding warp to get published, and the TV rights have already been optioned. And I think it's been discussed on every TV book club show going. It's even on Good Morning America. Um, And now she's here with me being asked what beverage she likes. Um, Yeah. Now, some of you may be listening just because you're a fan of Bonnie. And welcome, if you are. Uh, If you don't know this show, we talk about her day-to-day writing process. And most importantly, what she's working on now, uh, which is quite different from a lot of the other interviews she's done And it still blows my mind. I ask her about the book she's writing and she answers and we go into detail to the point of probably pissing off her publisher. And uh, we discuss the ongoing TV adaptation of Lessons in Chemistry and she answers and gives honest, uh, well, I believe honest answers and opinions. Again, I have no idea how I got this interview, how I got the privilege of Bonnie being so honest and forthcoming and polite and wonderful but I did and it's here and you're going to listen to it so yeah here's a guy who's completely out of his depth interviewing one of the most successful authors of the year just sit back and enjoy it I'm going to play a jingle and then we'll bring on Bonnie and this week I'm joined by Bonnie Garmus hi Bonnie hi Tom thanks for having me here Thank you for joining me. And uh, as always, my first question is, what are we drinking? We're drinking a double espresso. It's by Nespresso. We have a Nespresso machine. It's called Diablo, I think. Okay. So it's super strong. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of coffee. I'm having a very strong coffee to match you. I feel that I'm going to be talking <laughs> much faster than usual. <laughs> so I might have to slow it down in the edit as we're both like, Yes, oh. this podcast will be over quickly. <laughs> and where I'm talking yeah, right. to you... <laughs> and where I'm talking to you now, is this your writing spot at home? This is, yes. I'm sitting at the dining room table. I don't have an office and we live in a fairly small flat and I share my workspace with my heaven, husband ever since yeah. COVID. So we literally sit three feet away from each other and work all day. Oh gosh. And, and how's that? How's that coping for both of you? It's a good thing we get along so well, but I will say I'm one of those writers who reads everything out loud. And so my husband, who used to work at one point in professional audio, wears headphones that are, I mean, they're so large. I didn't even (laughs) think they existed in real life, but he can't hear a word I say. And he's very tolerant of me sitting here. And so with that, do you have uh, characters with like different accents? Do you put on voices for the different people that you, you read aloud? I am so bad at accents. I I can't, I was learning German at one point and the teacher said that I spoke like somebody who was Swedish who was learning German. (laughs) Oh gosh, where'd that come from? And then another teacher told me that I had a Spanish accent when I spoke German. So I guess, no, I I can't imitate anyone. All the characters sound alike when I read them out loud, but the rhythm of what they say definitely changes. And with your writing, I was really interested in, uh, because 
with Lessons in Chemistry, Elizabeth is such a strong character. And it's very interesting that it's set in the 1960s. Which came first? Was it very much that you wanted to write about this character and you felt it was best to set that character in the 60s? Or was it that the 60s setting was your initial thought and then you're like, what kind of character do I want to base in this world? Actually, the novel began because I'd had a bad day at work, but it was really because I'd been sitting in this meeting and it was just rife with blatant sexism. And I just couldn't believe in this day and age that I was still enduring this sort of thing. And I, as I went back to my desk to work, Elizabeth Zott, I felt like she was sitting there and she was like, oh, give me a break. So much worse where I came from. And so she, I pictured her, she'd been, by the way, a character in another novel, but a very minor character. So when she came back, I realized she was still in that era, which was the early 60s. And I think for me, it was really important. That's when my mom was a mom. And it gave me a chance to look back and think about what kind of limits were placed on her as a woman. And it shocked me, by the way, because I was under the impression, my mom was very good natured, under the impression it wasn't that bad. Oh, you know what? I was totally wrong. (laughs) It was pretty bad. So for both of those reasons, that's why it's set in the early 60s. Yeah. And with future work, like the projects that you're working on now, are you sort of planning to do more historic set writing or are you looking to write more contemporary? I like to work on a couple things at once. Mm -hmm. So I am writing something that is based in mostly the 80s, which for some reason still feels contemporary to me. (laughs) But uh, but then I was also working on something else that's that's actually based in in this era. I'm not sure if I'm going to pursue that, but I think around with it Mm. and see where it's going. Because I don't really write from any kind of outline or plan. I write from the characters and they pretty much boss me around and... (laughs) tell me what to do (laughs) okay and so with your characters do you write any kind of like biographies I know that sometimes people get writing exercises or interview your character or do you tend to keep it a lot more in your head and it's as you're writing you're engaging with them it's the latter one for sure I don't write little bios of my characters I tried to do that one time And then I never used a single thing in a bio. It's almost like I write it down and I follow this rule or an idea for how to write better. My little petulant self says, I'm not going to use that now. So no, I actually think what I like to do, I sit down and I really think about this character, but I like to put them in a situation and see what they're going to do with it. And that to me is how you get a rounded character. You let them lead you instead of you leading them. You may be the mayor of this town of your book, but your characters are the voters. Mm. And so they're the ones that actually have the final say. Yeah, that's a great attitude. I I really like how Elizabeth comes across on the page. I feel it's really strong and now I understand why. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I was born in the 80s. So that's an era that I'm partly familiar with, but from a very different perspective. Has it been like enjoyable or shocking to research the 80s because I I guess as you were saying there what your mother was telling you about the 60s and when you were researching it and going oh my goodness you know it's so much worse than I first thought when you're researching the 80s are are you finding like positive uh, revelations or is it a bit more scary? Actually I haven't really focused too much on the political landscape in the 80s in this particular novel although actually it does arise it definitely does arise but it's more in the background but the 
for me, the 80s are still very alive in my head because mm. that's when so much was going on in my life. I had graduated from uni and, uh, you know, you start to embark on your life. And I think so many people at that point in their lives have no idea what they're going to do. Mm. And they're really worried about it. And then it turns out that part of your life lasts the rest of your life <laughs> where you're yeah. not really sure yeah. you're doing what you should be doing. And that's really what I want to write about in this next book. Yeah. And yeah, I definitely remember in my 20s, there are some like American indie movies that I'd watch. I came to describe it as the mid 20s drift that once <laughs> you come out of education, it's just, okay, you need to find your way in the world now. You've got no more parental support. You've done right. all your education. It's on you yeah. now. You're, you, you need to discover who you are, what you stand for, you know, sort of what your yeah. values are. And yeah. yes, I think it is that thing of, I was watching these movies and go, okay, this is a 20s thing. And then I hit 30, I was like, oh, this has not gone away. <laughs> and then just meeting older people, oh, we're all just faking. And we're taking the few little bits that we've learned through lots and lots of mistakes <laughs> to look down on the people who are a decade younger than us and go, yeah, you don't know. You don't <laughs> yeah. know what's coming. Yeah, yeah, you uh, know what, good luck. <laughs> yeah, um, that's exactly it, yeah. yes. You're writing about a coming of age period in, in your life would you say that yeah. this book is more autobiographical are you drawing on more of your own experiences in this book than your first book not really the truth is I really hate to write about myself I feel like that is just a dead end I'm not that interesting <laughs> so what I like to do is really think about how other people feel all the time I think it's really important when you're writing a character that you have empathy for what they go through and how they feel and what their backgrounds were that how, why they approach life the way they do, how they were shaped. And I far prefer that. I mean, my life is honestly, it's just not that interesting. And actually my main protagonist in the next book is, is a man. And okay. I, I just absolutely love this guy mm. because he's just trying so hard and he's not making it, <laughs> not making good decisions. And it's so much like the rest of us, I think, at least in my opinion, where you kind of, you trudge forward a little bit. You think, yeah, I'm going to do this or that. And it doesn't work out. And it's so embarrassing to you because maybe some of your friends are doing so much better than you are, or your next yeah. door neighbor is doing so much better than you are, or those magazines say 30 under 30 or 40 under 40, and you're not there. You're not one of those people. And it's just so discouraging. So that's my, my character okay. in the next book. And was it a conscious decision that I've done a female protagonist's I'm going to do, alternate and do a male protagonist, or was it just something about the characteristics that you say? this is a male story, this is a masculine story. I kind of think men and women aren't that far apart. And I don't have any trouble at all envisioning the kind of trials and tribulations for a man. I will say, I think sometimes for men, there can be more pressure that they feel like they have to really succeed because they're the man, you know, and it's, it's really, it's an unfair pressure that we put on people. We're just all people. And mm. in my current book, my whole point is we're really just atoms and molecules and this whole like, ridiculous idea of there being so much difference between all of us. It's just simply not even scientifically true. That's yeah. completely made up. We are all pretty much the same. Mm. <laughs> so in terms of writing from a male point of view, I do that now in my current book. I have several male, male characters. And in fact, I have 10 different points of view. And many of those are from men. So writing this guy, he came directly to me and said, here's my story. 
And he really resonates with me because I think that we put ourselves under so much pressure to reach success at a certain time, at a certain pace, and in a certain way. And that just may not happen. And it may not be your fault, or it may not be your destiny, or it may not be whatever it is. But you just have to live every day and just keep getting up in the morning and going forward. And so I have a character in Lessons in Chemistry who knows exactly who she is and what she wants to do. And I have a character in this book who has no idea who he is, <laughs> and he's trying to figure that out. Yeah. Um, but they both share humor. So that's yeah. probably the tie between the two books. That's good. And yeah. you said there that this character arrived and here's my story. Did you have a very clear idea of the events that happen and where it starts and where it ends? Was that quite clear when you began writing the second book? Well, I think for me, I, I guess I would say I have an initial idea, which is probably a paragraph long on the first page. Mm -hmm. And that sets the stage for me. And then I throw a baseball way down the field and it lands and I go, I just have to get to there. And it lands at that yard line or in the outfield or whatever it is. And here's what happens then. And then I have no idea what comes between. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I don't write from an outline. Yeah. I think uh, I know some writers that I've interviewed, the reason they're compelled to write is to find out the journey between those two points. Yeah. Find out um, the story. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. And the idea where you said earlier about the 10 points of view how does that develop from having this main character that you're following through these two points in their lives? How do the other characters intervene? And when do you go, I need to follow this person's perspective for a bit? How, does that develop as you're writing? Yes. In Lessons in Chemistry, I didn't know I'd have that many points of view, but I needed every single one of them because they each comment on Elizabeth Zott in a very specific way. And they round her out. We see her from... We see her as flawed, annoying, inspirational, determined, courageous, et cetera. But I needed all of these people to round her out for us and see her from every perspective. In my current book, it's written in first person and it's a man talking. So it's a completely different way to do it. But the way he sees the world, he rounds all the other characters for us. He gives us his perspective on everybody he's surrounded by. And he's, he's, he shouldn't be a reliable reporter, but he is. He's, yeah. he's completely without artifice, at least talking to us on the page. He's like, oh, God, I really messed this up. You know, he's just, he's very honest, but he's also, you know, he makes a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Which he will confess to us, but not to anyone else in the book. And have you had to go into any sort of form of research for this book about anything that unfolds in it. And we don't need to go into the details of it, but do you have an approach to research in your writing? You know, it's so funny. I thought you were about to say, did you have to go into rehab for this next book? <laughs> and I thought, you know, I mean, that's I don't know writing is, <laughs> yeah, right. That's exactly it. Writing is so, I think it's so difficult. It's like running marathons back to back to back. But for this book, I didn't, I did have to do some research into a little bit of it, specifically architecture and history. But because I have a historian in the book, and I needed to know, understand how historians write history. Mm. Because really, if you're a historian, you're writing history, you're writing your point of view, you may have facts, but you're interpreting those facts to the rest mm. of the world and saying, here's what happened. So it's a really interesting point of view for me to have this guy in there. He's 
a medium character. He's not major, he's not minor, but he's important. And then I don't know, the characters each came to me one by one, but it leads off with this guy talking about how he was born. And you're not supposed to be able to remember that. And so he's hearing it through hearsay, what his mother's told him, what his father's told him. And the stories don't match. They just have a different point of view on the joy of his birth. And so it goes from there. But yeah, really, he's just commenting on that the book covers has several themes as does lessons in chemistry. And one of the themes I think is most important is, again, it's about family and what a family actually is and what a family actually is not. And so that's that runs through the entire book. Actually, that's a very uh, interesting point to address with writing is, is the themes of a book. And the theme of family, was that something that you were conscious of from the start? Is it something that you feel that you want to have in all of your books? Or is it something that has become apparent through the writing of the books? Well, you know, I think I've read from other writers, they say, well, it's funny, but as a writer, you tend to revisit the same themes over and over because you still haven't found that you've solved them in your own soul. Mm -hmm. And so you do tend to go back to them. But for me, a family is a really important topic because I think some people are born into families that don't quite fit them. And other families like mine are created by adoption. And then there's always a question of, well, with adoption, isn't that really a second choice? And I can say it absolutely is not a second choice. It's absolutely wonderful. But there's always this sort of idea that family, you have to look like someone or you get these traits from someone. But really, the truth is you are just who you are. Mm. And that's something that I like to address a lot because I think it's a message that people need to hear that you actually are okay just the way you are. And I don't know, I constantly hear parents will say, oh, he gets that from me or she gets that from me. And with our children, we can definitively say they don't get that from us. They are just who they are. Yeah. And they were who they were the moment we met them. Hmm. Their personalities were formed. So I think it's really about personality and just accepting that and engaging with it, being proud of who you are. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing with lessons in chemistry. I, um without saying who, there is an adopted character that's revealed in that. And it's interesting to see how it's represented because I think there's a lot of talk uh, culturally now about representation and about positive representation of minority groups. And yeah. it certainly is something that adoption isn't a mainstream discussion topic. And right. it often is portrayed negatively, like you say, uh, second choice. People yeah. who aren't capable of parenting, that negative connotation on the people who are giving up the baby or um, right, exactly. the, the, the people feeling that, oh, they, they may have adoptive parents, but they're not their real parents in quote marks. Right. So having to <laughs> exactly. sort of, uh, discover their biological parents. But like you say, you know, sort of everyone is their own person and the, the whole nature and nurture debate in that. So I guess if you have adoptive children, it, it does resonate with you to have positive portrayals of adoption. Um, yes, I think it's, it's super important to realize one of the reasons I have that dog is that he is also adopted, mm. of course, by Elizabeth, but the adopted also adopt. He adopts her, she adopts him. And 
I think obviously our children were too young to say, yeah, these people are great. They were babies. But I think it is really funny how in nature we'll see these videos. We'll go, oh, look, a skunk has adopted, you know, a weasel and it's raising the weasel or whatever it is. Well, that's because that's exactly how it happens in nature. Mm. We're part of nature. It's in our nature to adopt others. And it's completely 100% natural. And it's amazing how quickly you feel extremely strong parental feelings towards a child. Yeah, it's quite normal, but it's also, it's unsung, I think. Yeah. And speaking of your children, I think we owe a lot of thanks to your daughter, if I correct in that (laughs) she recommended a writing course for you. So can we hear a bit more about that? Because uh, you've been writing lessons in chemistry for a couple of years at this point and kind of yeah. in mm-hmm. between work. Yeah, um, my daughter, um, we had just moved to London and I was a little bit depressed. When you move as much as we do, you have to keep uprooting and making friends. And it's not that easy, actually. But we'd moved here and I still hadn't finished this novel. I'd written another novel that gotten rejected a ton. Um, but then I started Lessons in Chemistry and I was probably two thirds of the way through it or more. But I was just like, I'm going to, I'm not going to, I don't know, I don't want to do it. And she sent me this link to Curtis Brown. And there was a course they have there called Write to the End of Your Novel. And she goes, Look, mom, write to the end of your novel. So it's online. I signed up. And I did not write to the end of my novel. However, um, that particular class, which is taught by Anna Davis, was just great. And it was really the community that she creates. And, you know, you're watching videos of her basically telling you, hey, if you're stuck, do this. If you're this, do this. It was words of encouragement. That was exactly what I needed in that moment. And she said these words on one one of the days. She said, when you're stuck, just make something happen. And I thought, why didn't I think of that? That seems so obvious. Just make something happen. So that's what I did. And then suddenly, boom, I was off again. And then I ended up taking their in-person course. And I did that. I'm not much of a writer's group person, but I really didn't know anyone in London. And it, it can be lonely moving like this. I signed up, I got in, and then I met, you know, this great group of other writers. And it's really fun to be with other writers. We were only together one night a week for three months. But, you know, we bonded over the usual writing things of writer's block, procrastination, rejection, fear, (laughs) all the things that guide writing. And it was just such a wonderful place for me to be. So I'm very grateful to Curtis Brown. But it was my daughter who sent me that link. And so... I think with that course and finishing Lessons in Chemistry and the response that Lessons in Chemistry is getting, is it much easier to write your second book or is there a lot more pressure, do you feel, on your uh, next book? That's such a good question. I'll say that I have to be really careful not to write thinking about what my agent might think or what my editors might think. I learned that you really need to write with confidence. You really need to listen to the voice and you really need to pay attention to what you're doing. But you cannot have people sitting on your shoulders. So other readers, friends, whatever, you just have to just write it and write the best that you possibly can. And yeah, I think that's why writers groups can be dangerous because sometimes somebody will say something in a writers group that can derail a writer or make them feel less confident. Writers already don't have any confidence. (laughs) So the best thing to do is build your confidence is, you know, sit there and 
engage and let these people come to life and don't worry what anyone else is going to think. Just write it right then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And with uh, your regular writing schedule, do you uh, write every day? Do you work to uh, word counts or uh, is it more you just get the whim, you just get the creative urge and you just uh, write when you can? I definitely don't do word counts. I find that to be really constraining for me. And so I'm happy if I write 200 good words a day. I really admire writers who say, I don't quit until I've written a thousand, but boy, that is not me. I'd be there 24 hours a day trying to eke out a thousand good words. No, I let it. I, I do work long hours. I get up early. I write early. I take a break. I work all afternoon. Sometimes I come back in the evening. But I keep the story in my head and I keep the characters in my head and I keep it moving. But no, I definitely don't. I don't write to a word count. I Sometimes I don't get anything done, too. I, I can't say this strongly enough. If you haven't gotten a thing done all day, it still counts. You know, don't yeah. kill yourself. It just means, thank God you didn't write a bunch of crap that you're going to have yeah. to delete later. So, yeah. And I also, I'm not one of those writers who just write straight, just get the first draft down. And the next morning I get up and I review everything that I did the day before and I edit it. And I, and then I have those voices in my head and then we march forward. Yeah. Um, and going back to what you were saying there about sometimes you don't get anything done. There's a great scene in Lessons in Chemistry where they're talking about the scientist, uh, Calvin Evans, and how he'll have the music blaring and just be gazing <laughs> into space. But he's winning all these awards. We don't understand. This is because sometimes <laughs> you need a problem-solving day, and it doesn't need to ha have a results day. And I definitely saw writers in the scientist there, and I thought that was a very nice uh, moment. Which, yes, it's discussing uh, the scientific field, but it definitely can relate to uh, the creative writing field as well. Uh, yeah, that's ex that's exactly right. Yeah, I'm glad that you noticed that. <laughs> And so you get up early, you write early before, and you, you still have a separate job as well. No, I, uh, oh. I have now quit that. Okay. I quit that job. Yeah. Okay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you you structure your days around your writing. Have you developed any kind of writing rituals? Obviously, you, you work on the same desk as your husband and you, you yeah. read aloud. But do you sometimes uh, play music? Do you, do you have any props or any little like visual cues that you keep uh, beside you that helps relate to a character? Or is it just all in your head and you, you put it straight on the computer? Most of it is in my head. But I do have these little rituals in the morning where I get up and instead of, I don't know, instead of reading the newspaper, I, I immediately check my email. I mean, I'm working on a lot of different time zones. So a lot of those emails need to be answered because they were sent yesterday in someone else's time zone. So I usually answer the emails then, and then I go directly and I read what I've written before. And if I think, Ooh, I don't know, then I go and I go, okay, you know what? I'm going to read the newspaper and I'm going to do the New York times spelling bee. And so I always do the spelling bee until I reach genius, or I try to get beyond genius and then occasionally I get queen bee and then I know it's going to be a good day. But it, it's almost like it warms up my brain and then I can sit down and go, okay, what are we doing here? Who's talking? I also, um, in the middle of the night, I sometimes write things down and I consult what that notebook and see what I wrote down. And most of it, I can't read. My handwriting is horrible to begin with. When I was in third grade, my teacher, I think I was eight or nine years old, 
my teacher told me I would never go to college because my handwriting oh, wow. was so bad. <laughs> yeah, she was mean, but I did go to college. But occasionally my thoughts at night work, but most of the time they don't. But I can at least know my brain's still working on these problems every evening yeah. as I go to bed. Yeah, no, that's great. And so you always have a, a notebook by the side of your bed. Do you also take a notebook out with you? I know some people like to have a notebook with them at all times, but mm-hmm. other people just find it a distraction. I take one, but sometimes I don't open it at all. Yeah, I'm really not the writer who says, yeah, I write every day. I mean, I write emails every day, but there are days when I get nothing done. I don't write a single thing in the notebook. I don't wake up in the middle of the night. And it's just so debilitating (laughs) for a writer to, you know, people go, well, how, how come you're not done? Well, you know, it's embarrassing to say these characters are not speaking to me right now. I mean, it sounds mystical, but it's really not like that. It's just that getting them to talk and then putting it in a way that sounds compelling on the page are two different things. Yes. So I can't just write verbatim what they say because some of them are illiterate. So <laughs> I, I try to spend a lot of time on, on craft, on the craft of a sentence and on the rhythm of a sentence. And that part is very important to me. And when you're doing a writing session, are you someone who likes to write a block where you, you cover a certain event or a certain thought process of your character and then there, there's a line in the sand that, okay, you know, stop there. Because some people like to write and then will stop mid-sentence so that when they come back, they can continue on the thought from the previous day. So do you like to finish a chunk or do you like to leave it in mid-flow? Okay, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard, that somebody will write in, stop in mid-sentence. I've never heard of it. That is remarkable to Mm. me, and I may have to try that. No, I write, I I usually try to get to the end of a scene, and sometimes those scenes are very short, (laughs) and sometimes they're, you know, I'm a huge rewriter. I might write a draft of a scene, but I guarantee you I will revisit that scene I don't know, 30 or 40 times, just keep trying to get it tighter and tighter. I think tight prose is what I'm after. I don't want to waste a reader's time. I'm very cognizant of not wasting Mm. people's time. That's great. And I I don't think you do. I I think your your (laughs) writing is uh, very engaging and I really enjoy it. Um, So you you did a course and you finished lessons in chemistry after, (laughs) long after the course, you, you actually got it. Was there a great relief um of oh my god i've actually finished it or was it more grief that oh i've had this so long and now it's over oh my gosh you you asked the best question (laughs) for me there was some grief because it's hard to say goodbye to a character they you've been living with these people for years and i have to say there are times i leave the house and i think about them i'd be really surprised i'd see someone on the street i knew and they'd say oh you know what have you been doing today and I want to say, well, I was with Calvin all day, you know, oh, you can't say that to people. But it was grief for me, not only because it meant the people were, I'm not going to be spending that much time with them anymore, but because I'm the kind of writer who goes, oh, it is not good. It is not my best work. And I know I need to rewrite it again. So there's also this dread of, okay, now it's out in, in, in other people's hands and eyes, and I have to brace myself. Now, I've had a lot of practice in this area as a copywriter. I've been writing for a long time, and I'm really good, I think, at taking feedback and criticism, because when you work in technology or medical technology or education, you're constantly getting feedback from people who have come from a very different point of view. 
my point of view is always the same when I write, which is I want to write something compelling. I want to write something that sticks with the reader. I want to entertain the reader because I'm just betting they've had a, sh I don't know, something like that is going on. So I hand it off to somebody and I go, I feel good for 10 minutes. And then I go, oh, <laughs> and I think that's really common for writers to worry about feedback. It's a little different from copywriting because this is my own work. I'm not doing this, being paid for this by somebody else. On the other hand, like I said before, I really, over the years, I realized every single time I wrote with confidence, that's when the voice steadied itself. Mm. And if I just tried to write what I thought would please people, I'd never have a thing. Yeah. But with other people reading it, who is the first person that you trust yeah so for their feedback mm -hmm. once you've written it and you've drafted it and you've got it to mm -hmm. this feels like I, I've done as much as I can who yeah. is the next person to read it it's always my husband he is a phenomenal reader he's so well read it's sickening I mean he reads everything and he's a very technical person but he reads a lot of literature he has very strong opinions he doesn't laugh at anything. So for him to even smile slightly at anything I've written, it's wow, I just climbed Everest. So I'm up at the top waving the flag. <laughs> yeah. I've entertained him. So he is really not the kind of person who goes, yeah, that's nice, honey. He'll mm. go, I don't think this works. He, he's very blunt, yeah. but he's also, I think, very insightful about certain things. And so I've learned to listen to him, but also sometimes we just want to agree and I'll say, no, this is what I was going for, blah, blah, blah. And then he'll begrudgingly say, okay, you know what? You did do that. You did do that. But yeah, I would say that he is definitely my best reader. And it's because he is such a reader that yeah. I can trust that he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And now that you've had a taste of writing groups, although you, you not a big fan of them, do you have, um, <laughs> any writer friends? Do you have any beta readers? Or is it very much your husband reads it? And then once you've gone through drafting with him, it then goes to an agent or editor? It's probably the latter one at this point. However, you know, I did have a friend who I would have trusted, but she died, unfortunately. I do have a lot of writer friends. And I actually do trust them, but they're writing and they're pretty burdened with their own manuscripts. And so I don't, I don't want to bother them. Uh, too much, but also I can only give people small snippets of what I'm working on because I know I'm jumbling this out. I'm going to be jumbling those contents quite a bit. It's true that I'm not a fan of writing groups, but I'm a huge fan of the people in them. Mm. And I like to gather with them and I like to discuss the problems with writing, but yeah, I don't, I don't love giving my work to others because you get way too many cooks in the kitchen yeah. and way too many voices. But I will say in my book, in Lessons in Chemistry, I have a huge list of acknowledgments of people who've read. Now, all of those people have read probably less than a thousand words of Lessons in Chemistry, oh. maybe less than that, uh, except for, of course, my, my poor agent and my editors and things. But I wanted to acknowledge those people because every single one of them was so encouraging. And I needed that encouragement. Writers really need encouragement. And so that was really helpful to me. And even if I didn't use any of their suggestions or ideas or whatever, I mean, it's funny because people go, oh, Bonnie, you can't have two points of view on one page. It's impossible. It's right here in the writer's handbook. Okay, that's not going to be useful to me. I don't really follow rules of writing. I think 
Some rules are super important, but they can also get in your way. And if you're just going to try to write from a recipe, you're, you're going to fail. So I do have a lot of writing friends, but mostly we just call up and bitch to each other. <laughs> That's useful. That is a useful thing to have. Um, it's very useful. One thing I was just thinking about with the fact that you're not a planner and that you're someone who the character appears and then you're writing their story and you can see an ending and you're discovering that journey as you write. How do you summarize that to pitch that out to agents? When you finish <laughs> a book, go, I need to summarize everything that I've been through in the last few years in a paragraph. How I, <laughs> That must have oh. been one of the most challenging things for you. Well, the hilarious thing is that the writers have to write both a query and a synopsis. And my agent, Felicity Blunt, read neither of mine. So it was like, oh my God, after all that effort. I think the query and the synopsis are probably the worst part of writing across the board. I know writers everywhere just suffer. I'd written a, another novel before Lessons in Chemistry. And I, I think that novel is pretty good. It has some problems, one of them being length. But that novel, I reread my query of that novel just recently. And I went, oh, this is a really good query. Nevertheless, that book got turned down 98 times. No one would even repass the query because of the book's length. And I did have a couple people say, you can't write a book of this length when you're a debut author. And I went, oh, I didn't know how, that. How long I didn't do it? my research. It's almost 700 pages. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a tome. It's a doorstop. But, but anyway, I dread queries. And I dread trying to sum up the book because the book is an experience. You go to an art show and someone says, what's this about? And boy, it's about a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you mentioned there your agent, uh, Felicity Blunt, mm -hmm. talking about uh, bluntness with your husband. How was it once she got hold of it? And how much did the manuscript change from uh, there to actually being sold? So Felicity was so brave and signed me on a partial, which just isn't done. Um, but I, I was really grateful, of course. She was very enthusiastic about the character and everything. And she really steered me in the right direction and some things like she wanted more of Madeline. Felicity works in a way that I work best, which is she goes, nah, I wish that there was more of Madeline, or I wish that there was this, or I wish there was less of this. And so she'll say those things. I can work with that. But of course, sometimes we don't agree. And that's okay too. I think one thing that's really important for writers to remember is that you have created this thing in your head and you just need to see it through to the end. Do trust yourself. The, the agent is a really important person and they have such a strong footing in the book world. But if you're doing something really transgressive, if you're doing something that's slightly subversive, if you're breaking a lot of rules, you just have to know going in that you have to say to your agent, I'm doing something different here and you're just gonna have to trust me. And I think Felicity is that kind of agent. You know, she trusts me. I mean, she did argue with me about that dog, but that's okay. I liked it that she did. Yeah. yeah I'm on your side. I, I completely disagree. That should, <laughs> you know, it, it should all be about 6.30, the dog. 6.30, um, yeah. But yeah, I, I'll, I'll hold out for a sequel or a spinoff. And I guess yeah, sort of having an agent who believes in you so strongly and believes in your uh, writing so strongly has, she's probably summarize the book better than you have to people now that you're on the promotional tour for that book yeah. I, are you getting notes from felicity like 
how do I summarize this book? Is she, <laughs> is she able to help you no. with that? No, in fact, it's so funny. Well, one thing I've really learned is that everybody sees the book differently. Felicity does. I do. All of my readers do. Everyone I've talked to said, oh, you know, like I talked to someone last week and they said, this is a book that's really about female friendship. I wouldn't have said that. Or you get these different points of view from people and they're all valid. So no, I've had to refine my pitch over and over because I see it in this one way. Um, and it's little, it's too entrenched the way I see mm. it. So I've been really open to hearing what other people have to say. And occasionally I'll get a review and I'll go, I'm going to memorize this review and say it the way they did. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. I'm sure a fair amount of listeners will be aware now, but for those who don't, it was subject to a bidding war, your book. And the TV rights have already been snapped up. And yep. it's, is it still 35 countries that have, or is, it, is that expanded? Yeah, it's 37 now. Oh, it's 37. Okay. And yeah, it's been uh, in development with Brie Larson. Yes, at Elizabeth, Apple TV. At Apple TV. As and yeah. they've got the screenwriter of Erin Brockovich. Uh, yes, although in. she, yeah, she actually, her movie is getting made. So she's taking a little break and Hannah Fidel just came in. And Hannah Fidel is a director who worked on Pam and Tommy and has done some other oh, things. Wow. Yeah. So I just talked with her last week. She's fantastic. Yeah. So I'm really happy with this team. I, I think most people would on a debut as well. It's just incredible. Do you still feel in control? I think it's probably my question <laughs> on that, because I feel that when you've got suddenly all these big influential people and it's going out everywhere, do you feel that you're just on a ride right now? Or do you feel that you're still being listened to? That's such a good question too. It is a ride. I think most writers have to be prepared for the fact that people will see your characters in ways that you did not intend, or they'll see things there that you don't see at all. In fact, I have a paragraph in the book that sort of says, I, I know this is going to happen to me, where Elizabeth is talking about, I think she's reading Madame Bovary. And, and she says, she goes, this is not at all what he had meant. But anyway, I think it's a ride and you have to hang on, but you don't get to tell everybody else what to think. They get to think what they want to think. I will say it's really funny. Some people will really just focus on the humor in the book and they will completely sidestep the darkness in the book. And there's quite a bit of darkness. Other people really focus on the dark end of the book. And I find that fascinating. You know, I think that's, it's all on an individual level. What I tried to do is write something that was realistic and dark, but also fun, because I think it's really important especially boy we're in some dark days between yeah. the ukraine and and the pandemic and i don't know it's ongoing all the time but it just seems really dark right now mm. i think it's really important that we find ways to laugh at things because yeah. we've got to get through this you yes. just got to get through it yeah so uh, i'm not sure that answered your question but it, yes i think whether it's like there's so much going on that you're still getting a level of control I do want to just address what you were saying there about uh, you know, the, the lightness and the dark of the novel I, I think it life is light and dark I think yeah. certainly in the darkest times people can have gallows humor often finding humor in bleakness as a coping mechanism and yeah I, I think yeah there are certain uh, uh, scenes in that which kind of carry both which is one of the things that really appealed to me certainly was just the nuances 
in certain scenes where it's not just black and white. It's not just one thing mm-hmm. or another. And those complexities are balanced so beautifully, well, in, in certainly in my opinion. And that's what, <laughs> you know, sort of life's all about. And I think that's captured really well. But yeah, I was what I was asking before really was just when you're having such a big influential team of heavy hitters in you know, the TV oh, yeah. and, and uh, film yeah, industry, yeah. like you say, they'll interpret the story the way they want. And in a novel, the writer is king. In TV right. and film, the writer is yeah. almost like the last person. To, well, actually, in yeah. fi- film, <laughs> certainly, the writers are overlooked. Mm-hmm. And adaptations, you get very good adaptations. You get very bad ap- adaptations. You get adaptations that are good, but are completely different to the book. And right. so I was just interested, do you feel that they're very, you know, sort of very considerate of you and are asking you know, a, a lot of you? Or is, no, we've got the book, thanks. So we're going to just take it and yeah. interpret our own way. And how does that feel? It is tough. Yeah, it is tough. Because you feel like you're giving away your child. You've raised your child. And now someone else is going to finish it, take the child all the way to adulthood. And Sort of, I wouldn't have fed them that, or I wouldn't have had them go to that school or whatever. But in terms of the team in Hollywood, I, I haven't had much to do at all with any kind of writing. I am meeting with the writer's room next week because there are, I think, seven writers on this now. It's an eight episode limited series. And I think this is a brave team of people mm. because this book is written from 10 points of view. These conversations are a lot of interior dialogue, mm. how they plan to bring that out. And the dog itself is very difficult. They have not yet determined how they're going to portray this dog on screen. And, and I think that's a really big mountain to climb. Yeah. On the other hand, so I feel like I have these really talented people working on this and their heads are down on it. And the one thing that I always find really reassuring is they say, we are staying true to the book. We need mm. to stay true to the book. They do have to change things Mm. in order to adapt it to hour-long segments because a segment always has to end up on an up note you want to tune into the next segment so things have to be taken out of order necessarily and I think it's a really good idea for me to have backed away and not worked in the adaptation I have written a lot of scripts but they're not series scripts or Mm. movie scripts I know how it works but I wow I think this one would be a hard one to adapt so I've been saying to them I'm a writer's friend I bet, yeah. you know, this is just driving you crazy. So yeah, I feel really lucky to have this team, but you're absolutely right. No matter how good a team you have, it can turn into a complete piece of yuck. I don't know. Yeah. And it happens. It just happens. So I feel really confident, but we'll we'll see. Yeah. I think <laughs> I always hear when they, when they talk about adaptations, when they have got like a vast cast in the uh, book is how characters can be amalgamated because rather than having uh, a series of people who create obstacles. It's easier in filmic language to have a villain. Certainly, I think at the university that there are a couple of people who are obstacles. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they all survive the cut or if they all get amalgamated into an uber villain. I think that they're still all in there, from what I understand. I think uh, Brie Larson's a a fantastic actress, and she's very good at strong world characters, but with charm and humour, which Elizabeth needs. So I I think that's perfect, and I really look forward to it. Brie had asked for an exclusive on this, so she had asked to read it before any other actresses could even consider it. And she gave herself a weekend to go through it and then said, I'm in, I want to be Elizabeth. 
And she and I spoke by Zoom and I was really impressed by her. She's very down to earth. She's stunning, but she's just so completely normal and friendly, mm-hmm. smart. So yeah, I it was a really great conversation we had and she's a nice person. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited that that she's taken on this role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to go down to uh, my two final questions because uh, yep. we've covered so much and it's absolutely fantastic and I'm really enjoying chatting to you, Bonnie. But I just want to say, it's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with every story that they write. Was there anything particular that you learned through writing lessons in chemistry that you're now applying to your latest novel? Yeah, I would say, and I, you know, I think my editors for this, sometimes I leave a scene with one sentence too many, or I love tangents and I can just go down every alleyway possible and go, let's, let's, let's see what's under this garbage can lid. But I think that they imbued me with a little bit more restraint, which I think is really important. They didn't cut very much, but what they cut was smart. And so now when I think about, I don't think about them when I'm writing, but when I'm editing, I'm, I'm like, what would Jane and Lee think of this? Yeah, that, that's good. And is there one piece of advice that you find yourself returning to with your writing through anything that you've been told or read and just learned through your own writing that there's one thing that applies to your writing? I think it's what Anna Davis said in her class, write to the end of your novel, which of course I failed because I did not write to the end of my novel. But what she said was when you're stuck, make something happen. Hmm. That's it. So now I probably make too many things happen, but it works. (laughs) No, that's great. Lots of things happen in Lessons in Chemistry and they're all great. Bonnie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being my guest this week. Mutual. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And that was the real writing process of Bonnie Garmus. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you haven't read Lessons in Chemistry yet, Please pick up a copy as soon as you can, and I hope you'll love it as much as I do. Now, I feel I kept that together for about 90% of the interview. Uh, I do want to correct the statement I said at the end, though. Lots of things happen in lessons in chemistry, and they're not all great. I just want to clarify. Uh, There is conflict between characters, and some dark shit does happen. But the writing is great, and the overall story is great. It's just not all the things that happen in the book can be described as great. I just got carried away because I really enjoyed talking to Bonnie. Also, just to let you know, after I stopped recording, Bonnie said that this was her favourite interview. Now, okay, she's a kind American woman, and she might have said that after every interview, but I'm taking it. I do feel she genuinely enjoyed being on the show. Now, if you want to follow Bonnie on social media, she's on Twitter and Instagram, Bonnie Garmus, but I strongly recommend you follow 630thedog on Instagram. All lowercase words, no numbers or underscores, just 6.30 the dog. Worth it, and you're welcome. Now, all Bonnie's details will be in the show notes, because most of you are listening to this on your phone, and it will just be easier. Also in the show notes is a link to my Ko-fi page. Uh, If you like the show, would really appreciate a tip of a pound uh, or more, that'd be great. I don't run ads, I pay for the music and the hosting, and it just gives me that little bit of validation I never received from my parents. Also, I now have bonus content. So on the Kofi, there are little interviews of some authors I met at EasterCon, uh, which is the UK fan-led science fiction convention. Uh, they're lovely, lovely people, and they're available if you've done just a one-off payment. There's no subscription necessary. 
Anyway, that's it. That's the show. Uh, could be quite hard to follow this episode up with another guest of that caliber. You know, unless I had like a Hollywood screenwriter or something. Oh, wait. That's exactly who I've got. Anyway, that's next week. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you always keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and goodbyes. Maybe a love like ours can leave out its Shift and pull up the tides Never 